0: Matty told Hattie about things she saw. Two big horns. And a woolly jaw. Woolly bully. Woolly bully for you, stout yeoman. This month, this this week, this 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 season, we are being sponsored by BunnySlippers.com and their Highland Cow Woolly Bully Slippers. It doesn't say Woolly Bully on the website, it's just what I'm saying because I've had that song stuck in my head since I got these comfortable, comfortable wool slippers that I've been strolling around the studio with. Go to BunnySlippers.com, check them out yourself. Woolly Bully, that's not their name, Highland Cow Slippers, Highland Cow Slippers. Ooh, they're so soft and they're so fuzzy. And probably the next convention that I'll be at, I'll throw a pair out in the audience for everyone. Wooly Bully Slippers from BunnySlippers.com. And you know what? I can't talk about BunnySlippers.com without talking about my super cool greasy Tony's t shirt. It's a three-quarter length sleeve shirt. I- I'm just talking about it because I love this shirt. Uh, they don't expect me to talk about it. I just love dressing like Booger from Revenge of the Nerds. It's, uh, I don't know. He's my he's my Patronus, I guess one would say. All right. You know what we're talking about this week? We're not talking about anything this week. We're listening, people. We're listening. We're listening to Jules Verne. It's his, it's his birth month this month. Uh... And we're going to be covering uh, we're going to be talking about the Antarctic mystery ha, yes, the Antarctic mystery, where the Antarctic is more broken than my various accents that I do throughout the intro to this show woohoo a spooky dookie and uh hey, just something that's out there if you are someone who likes the show and wants to help out the show. Why not go to pgttcm.com and go to the donate option? Help the show. Help the show grow. Help repair the equipment. Help me. Help other podcasters get off the ground as I'm doing with Dave from Dave's Corner of the Universe and Zach Ferguson from Articulate Warbling. If you like either of those, why not help out the show and help them out as well? And also, I'm going to be trying to come up with a larger show, a larger format, something that I wanted People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos to be to begin with. Well, here's some Jules Verne and enough of me talking. Let's go.
1: An Antarctic Mystery by Jules Verne. Chapter 8 bound for the Falklands. On the 8th of September, in the evening, I had taken leave of His Excellency, the Governor-General of the Archipelago of Tristan de Chuna, for such is the official title bestowed upon himself by that excellent fellow, Glass, ex-corporal of artillery in the British Army. On the following day, before dawn, the Halbrane sailed. After we had rounded Harold Point, the few houses of Ansidlung, "'disappeared behind the extremity of Falmouth Bay. "'A fine breeze from the east carried us along gaily. "'During the morning we left behind us, in succession, "'Elephant Bay, Hardy Rock, West Point, Cotton Bay, and Dally's Promontory. "'But it took the entire day to lose sight of the volcano of Tristan da Cunha, "'which is eight thousand feet high. "'Its snow-clad bulk was at last veiled by the shades of evening.' During that week our voyage proceeded under the most favourable conditions. If these were maintained, the end of the month of September ought to bring us within sight of the first peaks of the Falkland group, and so very sensibly towards the south, the schooner having descended from the 38th parallel to the 55th degree of latitude. The most daring, or perhaps I ought to say, the most lucky, of those discoverers who had preceded the Halbrane, under the command of Captain Len Guy, in the Arctic Seas had not gone beyond. Kemp, the 66th parallel, Ballery, the 67th, Biscoe, the 68th, Bellinghausen and Morrill, the 70th, Cook, the 71st, Weddell, the 74th, and it was beyond the 83rd, nearly 550 miles further, that we must go to the succour of the survivors of the Jane. I confess that for a practical man of unimaginative temperament, I felt strangely excited. A nervous restlessness had taken possession of me. I was haunted by the figures of Arthur Pym and his companions, lost in Antarctic ice deserts. I began to feel a desire to take part in the proposed undertaking of Captain Guy. I thought about it incessantly. As a fact, there was nothing to recall me to America. It is true that whether I should get the consent of the commander of the Halbrane remained to be seen. But, after all, why should he refuse to keep me as a passenger? Would it not be a very human satisfaction to him to give me material proof that he was in the right, by taking me to the very scene of a catastrophe that I had regarded as fictitious, showing me the remains of the Jane at Salal? and landing me on that self-same island which i had declared to be a myth nevertheless i resolved to wait before i came to any definite determination until an opportunity of speaking to the captain should arise after an interval of unfavourable weather during which the halbrane made but slow progress on the fourth of october in the morning the aspect of the sky and the sea underwent a marked change the wind became calm, the waves abated, and the next day the breeze veered to the northwest. This was very favourable to us, and in ten days, with a continuance of such fortunate conditions, we might hope to reach the Falklands. It was on the eleventh that the opportunity of an explanation with Captain Len Guy was presented to me, and by himself, for he came out of his cabin, advanced to the side of the ship where I was seated, and took his place at my side. Evidently he wished to talk to me, and of what, if not the subject, which entirely absorbed him? He began saying, I have not yet had the pleasure of a chat with you, Mr. Jorling, since our departure from Tristan Dachuna. To my regret, Captain, I replied, but with reserve, for I wanted him to make the running. I beg you to excuse me, he resumed, I have so many things to occupy me, and make me anxious. A plan of campaign to organize, in which nothing must be unforeseen or unprovided for. I beg you not to be displeased with me. I am not, I assure you. That is all right, Mr. Jeorling, and now that I know you, that I am able to appreciate you, I congratulate myself upon having you for a passenger until our arrival at the Falklands. I am very grateful, Captain. For what you have done for me, and I feel encouraged to-the moment seemed propitious to making my proposal when Captain Len guy interrupted me. Well, Mr. Jeorling, he asked, are you now convinced of the reality of the voyage of the Jane, or do you still regard Edgar Poe's book as a work of pure imagination? I do not so regard it, captain. You no longer doubt that Arthur Pym and Dirk Peters have really existed, or that my brother William Guy and five of his companions are living? I should be the most incredulous of men, Captain, to doubt either fact, and my earnest desire is that the favour of heaven may attend you and secure the safety of the shipwrecked mariners of the Jane. I will do all in my power, Mr. Jeorling, and by the blessing of God I shall succeed.' "'I hope so, Captain. Indeed, I am certain it will be so. And if you consent—' "'Is it not the case that you talked of this matter with one Glass, "'an English ex-corporal who sets up to be governor of Tristan de Chuna?' "'Inquired the Captain, without allowing me to finish my sentence. "'That is so,' I replied. "'And what I learned from Glass has contributed not a little to change my doubts into certainty.' "'Ah, he has satisfied you?' "'Yes.' He perfectly remembers to have seen the Jane eleven years ago when she had put in at Tristan de Cunha. The Jane? And my brother? He told me that he had personal dealings with Captain William Guy. And he traded with the Jane? Yes, as he has just been trading with the Halbrain. She was moored in this bay? In the same place as your schooner. And Arthur Pym? Dirk Peters? He was with them frequently. Did he ask what had become of them? Oh, yes, and I informed him of the death of Arthur Pym, whom he regarded as a foolhardy adventurer, capable of any daring folly. Say a madman, and a dangerous madman, Mr. Jeorling. Was it not he who led my unfortunate brother into that fatal enterprise? There is indeed reason to believe so from his narrative. And never to forget it, added the captain in a tone of agitation. This man Glass, I resumed, also knew Patterson, the mate of the Jane. He was a fine, brave, faithful fellow, Mr. Jorling, and devoted body and soul to my brother. As West is to you, Captain, does Glass know where the shipwrecked men from the Jane are now? I told him, Captain, and also all that you have resolved to do to save them i did not think it proper to add that glass had been much surprised at captain guy's abstaining from visiting him as in his absurd vanity he held the commander of the halbrane bound to do nor that he did not consider the governor of tristan de tuna bound to take the initiative i wish to ask you mr jeorling whether you think everything in arthur pym's journal which has been published by edgar poe is exactly true i think there is some need for doubt i answered the singular character of the hero of those adventures being taken into consideration at least concerning the phenomenon of the island of salal and we know that arthur pym was mistaken in asserting that captain william guy and several of his companions perished in the landslip of the hill at Clocklock. ah uh, but he does not assert this mr jeorling he says only that when he and Dirk Peters had reached the opening through which they could discern the surrounding country, the seat of the artificial earthquake was revealed to them. Now, as the whole face of the hill was rushing into the ravine, the fate of my brother and twenty-nine of his men could not be doubtful to his mind. He was, most naturally, led to believe that Dirk Peters and himself were the only white men remaining alive on the island. He said nothing but this, nothing more. "'They were only suppositions. "'Very reasonable, are they not? "'I admit that fully, Captain. "'But now, thanks to Patterson's notebook, "'we are certain that my brother and five of his companions "'escaped from the landslip contrived by the natives.' "'That is quite clear, Captain. "'But as to what became of the survivors of the Jane, "'whether they were taken by the natives of Salal "'and kept in captivity or remained free, "'Patterson's notebook says nothing.' nor does it relate under what circumstances he himself was carried far away from them. All that we shall learn, Mr. Jeorling. Yes, we shall know all. The main point is that we are quite sure my brother and five of his sailors were living less than four months ago on some part of Salal Island. There is no question of a romance signed Edgar Poe, but of a voracious narrative signed Patterson. Captain, said I, will you let me be one of your company until the end of the campaign of the Halbrane in the Antarctic seas? Captain Len Guy looked at me with a glance, as penetrating as a keen blade. Otherwise he did not appear surprised by the proposal I had made. Perhaps he had been expecting it, and he uttered only the single word, willingly. End of Chapter 8 AN ANTARCTIC MYSTERY BY JULES VERNE CHAPTER Nine: FITTING OUT THE HALBRAIN On the 15th of October, our schooner cast anchor at Port Egmont, on the north of West Falkland. The group is composed of two islands, one the above-named, the other Soldad, or East Falkland. Captain Len Guy gave twelve hours' leave to the whole crew. The next day the proceedings were to begin by a careful and minute inspection of the vessel's hull and keel, in view of the contemplated, prolonged navigation of the Antarctic seas. That day Captain Len Guy went ashore to confer with the governor of the group on the subject of the immediate revictualling of the schooner. He did not intend to make expense a consideration, because the whole adventure might be wrecked by an unwise economy. Besides, I was ready to aid with my purse as I told him, and I intended that we should be partners in the cost of this expedition. James West remained on board all day, according to his custom, in the absence of the captain, and was engaged until evening in the inspection of the hold. I did not wish to go ashore until the next day. I should have ample time, while we remained in port, to explore Port Egmont and its surroundings and to study the geology and mineralogy of the island. hurly regarded the opportunity as highly favourable for the renewal of talk with me, and availed himself of it accordingly. He accosted me as follows. Accept my sincere compliments, Mr. Jorling. And wherefore, boatswain? On account of what I have just heard, that you are to come with us to the far end of the Antarctic Seas. Oh, not so far, I imagine, and if it is not a matter of going beyond the eighty-fourth parallel. Who can tell? replied the boatswain. At all events, the Halbrane will make more degrees of latitude than any other ship before her. We shall see. And does that not alarm you, Mr. Jorling? Not in the very least. Noras, rest assured. No, no. You see, Mr. Jorling, our captain is a good one, although he is no talker. You only need to take him the right way. First he gives you the passage to Tristan de Chuna that he refused you at first. Now he extends it to the pole. The pole is not the question, bosun. Ah, it will be reached at last some day. The thing has not yet been done, and besides, I don't take much interest in the pole, and have no ambition to conquer it. In any case, it is only to Salal Island. Salal Island, of course. Nevertheless, you will acknowledge that our captain has been very accommodating to you, and-and therefore I am much obliged to him, bo'sun, and, I hastened to add, to you also, for since it is to your influence I owe my passage. Hurliguerly, a good fellow at bottom, as afterwards I learned, discerned a little touch of irony in my tone, but he did not appear to do so. He was resolved to persevere in his patronage of me and, indeed, his conversation could not be otherwise than profitable to me, for he was thoroughly acquainted with the Falkland Islands. The result was that on the following day I went ashore, adequately prepared to begin my perquisitions. At that period the Falklands were not utilized as they have been since. It was at a later date that Port Stanley, described by Elysee Recluse, the French geographer, as ideal, was discovered. Port Stanley is sheltered at every point of the compass, and could contain all the fleets of Great Britain. If I had been sailing for the last two months with bandaged eyes, and without knowing whither the Halbrane was bound, and had been asked, during the first few hours at our moorings, Are you in the Falkland Islands, or in Norway? I should have puzzled how to answer the question, for here were coasts forming deep cracks, the steep hills with peaked sides— and the coast ledges faced with grey rock. Even the seaside climate, exempt from great extremes of cold and heat, is common to the two countries. Besides, the frequent rains of Scandinavia visit Magdalen's region in like abundance. Both have dense fogs, and in spring and autumn, winds so fierce that the very vegetables in the fields are frequently rooted up. A few walks inland, would, however, have sufficed to make me recognize that I was still separated by the equator from the waters of northern Europe. What had I found to observe in the neighborhood of Port Egmont, after my explorations of the first few days? Nothing but the signs of sickly vegetation, nowhere arborescent. Here and there a few shrubs grew, in place of the flourishing firs of the Norwegian mountains and the surface of the spongy soil which sinks and rises under the foot, is carpeted with mosses, fungi, and lichens. No, this was not the enticing country where the echoes of the sagas resound. This was not the poetic realm of Wooden and the Valkyries. On the deep waters of the Falcon Strait, which separates the two principal isles, great masses of extraordinary aquatic vegetation floated, and the bays of the archipelago, where whales were already becoming scarce, were frequented by other marine mammals of enormous size, seals twenty-five feet long by twenty in circumference, and great numbers of sea elephants, wolves, and lions, of proportion no less gigantic. The uproar made by these animals, by the females and their young especially, surpasses description. One would think that herds of cattle were bellowing on the beach, Neither difficulty nor danger attends the capture, or at least the slaughter of the marine beasts. The sealers kill them with a blow of a club when they are lying in the sands on the strand. These are the special features that differentiate Scandinavia from the Falklands, not to speak of the infinite number of birds which rose on my approach. Grebe, cormorants, black-headed swans, and above all, tribes of penguins of which hundreds of thousands are massacred each year. One day, when the air was filled with a sound of braying, sufficient to deafen one, I asked an old sailor belonging to Port Egmont, Are there asses about here? Sir, he replied, those are not asses that you hear, but penguins. The asses themselves, had any been there, would have been deceived by the braying of these stupid birds. I pursued my investigations some way to the west of the bay. West Falkland is more extensive than its neighbor, La Soldad, and possesses another fort at the southern point of Byron Sound, too far off for me to go there. I could not estimate the population of the archipelago even approximately. Probably it did not then exceed from two to three hundred souls, mostly English, with some Indians, Portuguese, Spaniards from the Argentine Pampas, and natives from Tierra del Fuel. On the other hand, the representatives of the ovine and bovine races were to be counted by tens of thousands. More than 500,000 sheep yield over $400,000 worth of wool yearly. There are also horned cattle bred on the islands. These seem to have increased in size, while the other quadrupeds, for instance, Horses, pigs, and rabbits have decreased. All these live in a wild state, and the only beast of prey is a dog-fox, a species peculiar to the fauna of the Falklands. Not without reason has this island been called a cattle-farm. What inexhaustible pastures! What an abundance of that savoury grass, the tussock, does nature lavish on animals there! Australia, though so rich in this respect, does not set a better-spread table before her ovine and bovine pensioners. The Falklands ought to be resorted to for the revictualling of ships. The groups are of real importance to navigators making for the Strait of Magellan, as well as to those who come to fish in the vicinity of the polar regions. When the work on the hull was done, West occupied himself with the masts and the rigging, "'with the assistance of Martin Holt, our sailing-master, who was very clever at this kind of industry. "'On the 21st of October, Captain Len Guy said to me, "'You shall see, Mr. Jorling, that nothing will be neglected to ensure the success of our enterprise. "'Everything that can be foreseen has been foreseen.' and if the Halbrane is to perish in some catastrophe, it will be because it is not permitted to human beings to go against the designs of God. I have good hopes, Captain, as I have already said. Your vessel and your crew are worthy of confidence. But supposing the expedition should be much prolonged, perhaps the supply of provisions? We shall carry sufficient for two years, and those shall be of good quality. Port Egmont, has proved capable of supplying us with everything we require. Another question, if you will allow me. Put it, Mr. Jorling, put it. Shall you not need a more numerous crew for the Halbrane? Though you have men enough for the working of the ship, suppose you find you have to attack or defend in the Antarctic waters. Let us not forget that, according to Arthur Pym's narrative, there were thousands of natives on Salal Island, and if your brother... His companions are prisoners. I hope, Mr. Jorling, our artillery will protect the Halbrane better than the Jane was protected by her guns. To tell the truth, the crew we have would not be sufficient for an expedition of this kind. I have been arranging for recruiting our forces. Will it be difficult? Yes and no, for the governor has promised to help me. I surmise, Captain that recruits will have to be attracted by larger pay. Double pay, Mr. Jorling, and the whole crew must have the same. You know, Captain, I am disposed and indeed desirous to contribute to the expenses of the expedition. Will you kindly consider me as your partner? All that shall be arranged, Mr. Jorling, and I am grateful to you. The main point is to complete our armament with the least possible delay we must be ready to clear out in a week. The news that the schooner was bound for the Antarctic seas had produced some sensation in the Falklands, at Port Egmont, and in the ports of Las Soldad. At that season a number of unoccupied sailors were there, awaiting the passage of the whaling ships to offer their services, for which they were very well paid in general. If it had been only for a fishing campaign on the borders, of the polar circle between the Sandwich Islands and New Georgia, Captain Len Guy would have merely had to make a selection. But the projected voyage was a very different thing, and only the old sailors of the Halbrane were entirely indifferent to the dangers of such an enterprise, and ready to follow their chief whithersoever it might please him to go. In reality it was necessary to treble the crew of the schooner. "'Counting the captain, the mate, the boatswain, the cook, and myself, we were thirteen on board. "'Now, thirty-two or thirty-four men would not be too many for us, "'and it must be remembered that there were thirty-eight on board the Jane. "'In this emergency the governor exerted himself to the utmost, "'and thanks to the largely extra pay that was offered, "'Captain Lenkai procured his full tale of seamen.' nine recruits signed articles for the duration of the campaign which could not be fixed beforehand but was not to extend beyond salal island the crew counting every man on board except myself numbered thirty-one and a thirty-second for whom i bespeak special attention on the eve of our departure captain len guy was accosted at the angle of the port by an individual whom he recognized as a sailor by his clothes his walk and his speech This individual said, in a rough and hardly intelligible voice, "'Captain, I have a proposal to make to you.' "'What is it? Have you still a place? For a sailor?' "'For a sailor. Yes and no. Is it yes? It is yes, if the man suits me. Will you take me? "'You are a seaman. I have served the sea for twenty-five years. Where?' In the Southern Seas? Far? Yes, far, far. Your age? Forty-four years. And are you at Port Egmond? I shall have been there three years come Christmas. Did you expect to get on a passing whale ship? No. Then what are you doing here? Nothing. I did not think of going to sea again. Then why do you seek a berth? Just an idea. The news of the expedition of your schooner is going on with spread. I desire, yes, I desire, to take a part in it with your leave, of course. You are known at Port Egmond? Very well known, and I have incurred no reproach since I came here. Very well, said the captain. I will make an inquiry, respecting you. Inquire, captain, and if you say yes, my bag shall be on board this evening. What is your name? "'Hunt. And you are an American?' "'This Hunt was a man of short stature. "'His weather-beaten face was brick-red. "'His skin was of a yellowish-brown, like an Indian's. "'His body clumsy, his head very large. "'His legs were bowed. "'His whole frame denoted exceptional strength, "'especially at the arms, which terminated in huge hands. "'His grizzled hair resembled a kind of fur.' A particular and anything but prepossessing character was imparted to the physiognomy of this individual by the extraordinary keenness of his small eyes, his almost lipless mouth which stretched from ear to ear, and his long teeth which were dazzlingly white, their enamel being intact, for he had never been attacked by scurvy, the common scourge of seamen in high latitudes." Hunt had been living in the Falklands for three years. He lived alone on a pension. No one knew from whence this was derived. He was singularly uncommunicative, and passed his time in fishing, by which he might have lived, not only as a matter of sustenance, but as an article of commerce. The information gained by Captain Len Guy was necessarily incomplete, as it was confined to Hunt's conduct during his residence at Port Egmont. The man did not fight, he did not drink, and he had given many proofs of his Herculean strength. Concerning his past nothing was known, but undoubtedly he had been a sailor. He had said more to Len Guy than he had ever said to anybody, but he kept silence, respecting the family to which he belonged and the place of his birth. This was of no importance. That he should prove to be a good sailor was all that we had to think about. Hunt obtained a favorable reply. And came on board that same evening. On the twenty-seventh in the morning, in the presence of the authorities of the archipelago, the Halbrain's anchor was lifted, the last good wishes and the final adieus were exchanged, and the schooner took the sea. The same evening Capes Dolphin and Pembroke disappeared in the mists of the horizon. Thus began the astonishing adventure undertaken by these brave men who were driven by a sentiment of humanity towards the most terrible regions of the Antarctic realm. End of chapter 9 An Antarctic Mystery by Jules Verne Chapter 10 The Outset of the Enterprise Here I was, then, launched into an adventure which seemed likely to surpass all my former experiences. Who would have believed such a thing of me? But I was under a spell which drew me towards the unknown, that unknown of the polar world, whose secrets so many daring pioneers had in vain essayed to penetrate, and this time who could tell but that the sphinx of the Antarctic regions would speak for the first time to human ears." The new crew had, firstly, to apply themselves to learning their several duties, and the old, all fine fellows, aided them in the task. Although Captain Lenguy had not much choice, he seemed to have been in luck. These sailors, of various nationalities, displayed zeal and goodwill. They were aware, also, that the mate was a man with whom it would not do to vex, for Hurly-gurly had given them to understand, that west would break any man's head who did not go straight. His chief allowed him full latitude in this respect. A latitude, he added, which is obtained by taking the altitude of the eye with a shut fist. I recognized my friend the bosun in the manner of this warning to all whom it might concern. The new hands took the admonition seriously, and there was no occasion to punish any of them. As for hunt, while he observed the docility of a true sailor in all his duties, he always kept himself apart speaking to none, and even slept on the deck in a corner rather than occupy a bunk in the forecastle with the others. Captain Len guy's intention was to take the Sandwich Isles for his point of departure towards the south, after having made acquaintance with New Georgia, distant eight hundred miles from the Falklands. Thus the schooner would be in longitude on the route of the Jane on the second of november this course brought us to the bearings which certain navigators have assigned to the aurora islands thirty degrees fifteen minutes of latitude and forty seven degrees thirty three minutes of east longitude well then notwithstanding the affirmations which i regarded with suspicion of the captains of the aurora in seventeen sixty two of the saint miguel in seventeen sixty nine of the pearl in seventeen seventy nine of the Prinicus and the Dolores in 1790, of the Atrevida in 1794, which gave the bearings of these three islands of the group, we did not perceive a single indication of land in the whole of the space traversed by us. It was the same with regard to the alleged islands of the conceited glass. Not a single little islet was to be seen in the position he had indicated, although the lookout was most carefully kept. It is to be feared that His Excellency, the Governor of Tristan da Chuna, will never see his name figuring in geographical nomenclature. It was now the 6th of November. Our passage promised to be shorter than that of the Jane. We had no need to hurry, however. Our schooner would arrive before the gates of the iceberg wall would be open. For three days the weather caused the working of the ship to be unusually laborious, and the new crew behaved very well. Thereupon the boatswain congratulated them. hurly Gurley bore witness that Hunt, for all his awkward and clumsy build, was in himself worth three men. "'A famous recruit,' said he. "'Yes, indeed,' I replied, and gained just at the last moment. "'Very true, Mr. Jarling. but what a face and head he has, that Hunt!' "'I have often met Americans like him in the regions of the Far West,' I answered, "'and I should not be surprised if this man had Indian blood in his veins. "'Do you ever talk with Hunt?' "'Very seldom, Mr. Jorling. "'He keeps to himself, and away from everybody. "'And yet it is not for want of mouth. "'I never saw anything like his. "'And his hands? "'Have you seen his hands? "'Be on your guard, Mr. Jorling, "'for if he ever wants to shake hands with you.' Fortunately, boatswain Hunt does not seem to be quarrelsome. He appears to be a quiet man who does not abuse his strength. No, except when he is setting a halyard. yard Then I am always afraid the pulley will come down in the yard with it. Hunt certainly was a strange being, and I could not resist observing him with curiosity, especially as it struck me that he regarded me at times with a curious intentness. On the 10th of November, at about two in the afternoon, the lookout shouted, "'Land ahead! Starboard!' An observation had just given 57 degrees 7 minutes latitude and 41 degrees 13 minutes longitude. This land could only be the Isle de Saint-Paris. Its British names are South Georgia, New Georgia, and King George's Islands, and it belongs to the circumpolar regions.' It was discovered by the Frenchman Barb in 1675, before Cook, but, although he came in second, the celebrated navigator gave it the series of names which it still bears. The schooner took the direction of this island, whose snow-clad heights, formidable masses of ancient rock rise to an immense altitude through the yellow fogs of the surrounding space. New Georgia situated within five hundred leagues of Magdalen Straits, belongs to the administrative domains of the Falklands. The British administration is not represented there by anyone the island is not inhabited, although it is habitable, at least in the summer season. On the following day, while the men were gone in search of water, I walked about in the vicinity of the bay. The place was an utter desert, for the period at which sealing is pursued there had not arrived. New Georgia, being exposed to the direct action of the Antarctic polar current, is freely frequented by marine mammals. I saw several droves of these creatures on the rocks, the strand, and within the rock grottoes of the coast. Whole smalas of penguins, standing motionless in interminable rows, brayed their protest against the invasion of an intruder. I allude to myself. Innumerable larks flew over the surface of the waters and the sands. Their song awoke my memory of lands more favored by nature. It is fortunate that these birds do not want branches to perch on, for there does not exist a tree in New Georgia. Here and there I found a few phanograms, some pale-colored mosses, and especially tussock grass in such abundance that numerous herds of cattle might be fed upon the island. On the 12th November the Halbrane sailed once more, and having doubled Charlotte Point at the extremity of Royal Bay, she headed in the direction of the Sandwich Islands four hundred miles from thence. So far we had not encountered floating ice. The reason was that the summer sun had not detached any either from the icebergs or the southern lands, Later on the current would draw them to the height of the fiftieth parallel, which, in the southern hemisphere, is that of Paris or Quebec. But we were much impeded by huge banks of fog, which frequently shut out the horizon. Nevertheless, as these waters presented no danger, and there was nothing to fear from ice-packs or drifting icebergs, the Halbrain was able to pursue her route towards the Sandwich Islands comfortably enough, Great flocks of clangorous birds, breasting the wind, and hardly moving their wings, passed us in the midst of fogs. Petrels, divers, halicons, and albatross bound landwards, as though to show us the way. Owing no doubt to these mists, we were unable to discern Traversy Island. Captain Guy, however, thought some vague streaks of intermittent light, which were perceived in the night between the 14th and the 15th, probably proceeded from a volcano which might be that of Traversy, as the crater frequently emits flames. On the 17th November the schooner reached the archipelago, to which Cook gave the name of Southern Toole, in the first instance, as it was the most southern land that had been discovered at that period. He afterward baptized it Sandwich Isles. James West repaired to Toole in the large boat, in order to explore the approachable points, while Captain Guy and I descended on the Bristol Strand. We found absolutely desolate country. The only inhabitants were melancholy birds of Antarctic species. Mosses and lichens cover the nakedness of an unproductive soil. Behind the beach a few firs rise to a considerable height. On the bare hillsides, from whence great masses occasionally come crashing down with a thundering sound. Awful solitude reigns everywhere. There was nothing to attest the passage of any human being or the presence of any shipwrecked persons on Bristol Island. West's explorations at Toul produce a precisely similar result. A few shots fired from our schooner had no effect but to drive away the crowd of petrels and divers, and to startle the rows of stupid penguins on the beach. While Captain Guy and I were walking, I said to him, You know, of course, what Cook's opinion on the subject of the sandwich group was when he discovered it. At first he believed he had set foot upon a continent. According to him, the mountains of ice carried out of the Antarctic Sea by the drift were detached from that continent. He recognized afterwards that the sandwiches only formed an archipelago, but nevertheless his belief that a polar continent further south exists remained firm and unchanged. "'I know that is so, Mr. Jorling,' replied the captain. "'But if such a continent exists, "'we must conclude that there is a great gap in its coast, "'and that Weddell and my brother each got in by that gap at six years' interval. "'That our great navigator had not the luck to discover this passage is easy to explain. "'He stopped at the 71st parallel. "'But others found it after Captain Cook, and others will find it again.' "'and we shall be of the number, Captain.' "'Yes, with the help of God.' "'Cook did not hesitate to assert "'that no one would ever venture further than he had gone, "'and that the Antarctic lands, if any such existed, "'would never be seen. "'But the future will prove that he was mistaken. "'They have been seen so far as the eighty-fourth degree of latitude.' "'And who knows,' said I, "'perhaps beyond that by Arthur Pym.' Perhaps, Mr. Jorling, it is true that we have not to trouble ourselves about Arthur Pym, since he, at least, and Dirk Peters also, returned to America. But, supposing he did not return, I consider that we have not to face that eventuality, replied Captain Lengay. End of Chapter 10 An Antarctic Mystery by Jules Verne. Chapter 11. From the Sandwich Islands to the Polar Circle. The Halbrain, singularly favoured by the weather, sighted the New South Orkneys group in six days after she had sailed from the Sandwich Islands. This archipelago was discovered by Palmer, an American, and Bothwell, an Englishman, jointly in 1821-22. to Crossed by the 61st parallel, it is comprehended between the forty-fourth and the forty-seventh meridian. On approaching we were able to observe contorted masses and steep cliffs on the north side, which became less rugged as they neared the coast, at whose edge lay enormous ice-floes, heaped together in formidable confusion. These, before two months should have expired, should be drifted towards the temperate waters. At that season the whaling-ships would appear to carry on the taking of the great blowing creatures, while some of their crews would remain on the island to capture seals and sea-elephants. In order to avoid the strait which was encumbered with islets and ice-floes, Captain Len Guy first cast anchor at the southeastern extremity of Lorry Island, where he passed the day on the 24th. Then, having rounded Cape Dundas, he sailed along the southern coast of Coronation Island, where the schooner anchored on the 25th. Our close and careful researches produced no result as regarded the sailors of the Jane. The islands and islets were peopled by multitudes of birds. Without taking the penguins into account, those guano-covered rocks were crowded with white pigeons, a species of which I had already seen some specimens these birds have rather short conical beaks and red-rimmed eyelids they can be knocked over with little difficulty as for the vegetable kingdom in the new south orkneys it is represented only by gray lichen and some scanty seaweeds mussels are found in great abundance along the rocks of these we procured an ample supply the boatswain and his men did not lose the opportunity of killing several dozens of penguins with their sticks not from a ruthless instinct of destruction, but from the legitimate desire to procure fresh food. "'Their flesh is just as good as chicken, Mr. Jarling," said hurley "'Did you not eat penguin at the Kerguelens? "'Yes, bosun, but it was cooked by Arkans.' "'Very well, then, it will be cooked by Endicott here, and you will not know the difference. "'And in fact we in the saloon, like the men in the forecastle, were regaled with penguin and acknowledged the merits of our excellent sea cook. The Halbrane sailed on the 26th of November at six o'clock in the morning, heading south. She reascended the 43rd meridian. This we were able to ascertain very exactly by a good observation. This route it was that Weddell and then William Guy had followed, and provided the schooner did not deflect either to the east or the west, she must inevitably come to Salal Island. The difficulties of navigation had to be taken into account, of course. The wind, continuing to blow steadily from the west, was in our favour, and if the present speed of the halbring could be maintained, as I ventured to suggest to Captain Guy, the voyage from the South Orkneys to the Polar Circle would be a short one. Beyond, as I knew, we should have to force the gate of the thick barrier of icebergs, or to discover a breach in that ice fortress." "'So that, in less than a month, Captain,' I suggested tentatively. "'In less than a month I hope to have found the iceless sea which Weddell and Arthur Pym described so fully, beyond the ice-wall, and thenceforth we need only sail under ordinary conditions to Bennett Island in the first place, and afterwards to Salal Island. Once on that wide-open sea, what obstacle could arrest or even retard our progress?' I can foresee none, Captain, so soon as we shall get to the back of the ice-wall. The passage through is the difficult point. It must be our chief source of anxieties, and if only the wind holds. It will hold, Mr. Jorling. All the navigators of the austral seas have been able to ascertain, as I myself have done, the permanence of this wind. That is true, and I rejoice in the assurance, Captain. Besides, I acknowledge, without shrinking from the admission, that I am beginning to be superstitious, and why not, Mister Jorling? What is there unreasonable in admitting the intervention of a supernatural power in the most ordinary circumstances of life? And we who sail the Halbrane, should we venture to doubt it? Recall to your mind our meeting with the unfortunate Patterson on our ship's course, the fragment of ice carried into the waters where we were, and dissolved immediately afterwards. Were not these facts providential? Nay, I go further still, and am sure that, after having done so much to guide us towards our compatriots, God will not abandon us. I think as you think, Captain, no, his intervention is not to be denied, and I do not believe that chance plays the part assigned to it by superficial minds upon this stage of human life. All the facts are united by a mysterious chain." A chain, Mr. Jorling, whose first link, so far as we are concerned, is Patterson's ice-block, and whose last will be Salal Island. Ah, my brother, my poor brother, left there for eleven years with his companions in misery, without being able to entertain the hope that succor ever could reach them. And Patterson carried far away from them, under we know not what conditions, they not knowing what had become of him. "'If my heart is sick when I think of these catastrophes, Mr. Jorling, "'at least it will not fail me, "'unless it be at the moment when my brother throws himself into my arms.' "'So then we too were agreed in our trust in Providence. "'It had been made plain to us in a manifest fashion "'that God had entrusted us with a mission, "'and we would do all that might be humanly possible to accomplish it. "'The schooner's crew, I ought to mention, "'were animated by like sentiments.' and shared the same hopes. I alluded to the original seamen, who were so devoted to their captain. As for the new ones, they were probably indifferent to the result of the enterprise, provided it should secure the profits promised to them by their engagement. At least I was assured by the boatswain that such was the case, but with the exception of Hunt. This man had apparently not been induced to take service by the bribe of high wages or prize money, he was absolutely silent on that and every other subject. "'If he does not speak to you, bosun,' I said, "'neither does he speak to me. "'Do you know, Mr. Jeorling, "'what it is my notion that man has already done? "'Tell me, Hurley gurly "'Well, then, I believe he has gone far, "'far into the southern seas. "'Let him be as dumb as a fish about it. "'Why he is dumb is his own affair.' But if that sea-hog of a man has not been inside the Antarctic Circle, and even the ice-wall by a good dozen degrees, may the first sea we ship carry me overboard. From what do you judge, Bosun? From his eyes, Mr. Jeorling, from his eyes. No matter at what moment let the ship's head be as it may, those eyes of his are always on the south, open, unwinking, fixed like guns in position.' hurley did not exaggerate, and I had already remarked this. To employ an expression of Edgar Poe's, Hunt had eyes like a falcon's. When he is not on the watch, resumed the bosun, that savage leans all the time with his elbows on the side, as motionless as he is mute. His right place would be at the end of our bow, where he would do for a figurehead to the halbrane, and a very ugly one at that. And then... When he is at the helm, Mr. Jorling, just observe him. His enormous hands clutch the handles as though they were fastened to the wheel. He gazes at the binnacle, as though the magnet of the compass were drawing his eyes. I pride myself on being a good steersman, but as for being the equal of hunt, I am not. With him, not for an instant does the needle vary from the sailing line, however rough a lurch she may give. I am sure that if the binnacle lamp were to go out in the night, Hunt would not require to relight it. The fire in his eyes would light up the dial and keep him right. For several days our navigation went on in unbroken monotony, without a single incident and under favourable conditions. The spring season was advancing, and whales began to make their appearance in large numbers. In these waters a week would suffice for ships of heavy tonnage to fill their casks with the precious oil. Thus the new men of the crew and especially the Americans did not conceal their regret for the captain's indifference in the presence of so many animals worth their weight in gold and more abundant than they had ever seen whales at that period of the year. The leading malcontent was hearne, a sealing master to whom his companions were ready to listen. He had found it easy to get the upper hand of the other sailors by his rough manner and the surly audacity that was expressed by his whole personality. Hearn was an American, and forty-five years of age. He was an active, vigorous man, and I could see him, in my mind's eye, standing up in his double-bowed whaling-boat, brandishing the harpoon, darting it into the flank of a whale, and paying out the rope. He must have been fine to see. Granted, his passion for this business, I could not be surprised that his discontent showed itself upon occasion— In any case, however, our schooner was not fitted out for fishing, and the implements of whaling were not on board. One day, about three o'clock in the afternoon, I had gone forward to watch the gambols of a school of the huge sea mammals. Hearn was pointing them out to his companions and muttering in disjointed phrases, "'There, look! There's a finback!' "'There's another, and another three of them with their dorsal fins five or six feet high. "'Just see them swimming between two waves, quietly, making no jumps. "'Ah, if I had a harpoon, I'd bet my head that I could send it into one of those four yellow spots they have on their bellies. "'But there's nothing to be done in this traffic-box. "'One cannot stretch one's arms. Devil take it. "'In these seas it is fishing we ought to be at, not—' "'Then, stopping short, he swore a few oaths and cried out—' "'And that other whale!' "'The one with a hump like a dromedary?' asked a sailor. "'Yes, it's a humpback,' replied Hearn. "'Do you make out its wrinkled belly, and also its long dorsal fin? "'They are not easy to take, those humpbacks, "'for they go down into the great depths and devour long reaches of your lines. "'Truly, we deserve that he should give us a switch of his tail on our side, "'since we don't send a harpoon into his.' "'Look out! look out!' shouted the boatswain. This was not to warn us that we were in danger of receiving the formidable stroke of the humpback's tail, which the sea-master had wished us. No, an enormous blower had come alongside the schooner, and almost on the instant a spout of ill-smelling water was ejected from its blowhole, with a noise like a distant roar of artillery. The whole foredeck to the main hatch was inundated. "'That's well done,' growled Hearn, shrugging his shoulders while his companions shook themselves and cursed the humpback. Besides these two kinds of cetacea we had observed several right whales, and these are the most usually met with in the southern seas. They have no fins, and their blubber is very thick. The taking of these fat monsters of the deep is not attended with much danger. The right whales are vigorously pursued in the southern seas, where the little shellfish called whale's food abound. The whales subsist entirely upon these small crustaceans. Presently one of the right whales, measuring sixty feet in length, that is to say, the animal was the equivalent of a hundred barrels of oil, was seen floating within three cable lengths of the schooner. "'Yes, that's a right whale!' exclaimed Hearn. "'You might tell it by its thick short spout. See, that one on the port side, like a column of smoke, that's the spout of a right whale.' "'and all this is passing before our very noses, a dead loss. "'Why, it's like emptying money-bags into the sea, "'not to fill one's barrels when one can. "'A nice sort of captain, indeed, to let all this merchandise be lost, "'and do such wrong to his crew. "'Hearn,' said an imperious voice, "'go up to the main-top. "'You will be more at your ease there to reckon the whales. "'But, sir,' no reply, or I'll keep you up there till tomorrow. "'Come, be off at once.' "'and as he would have got the worst of an attempt at resistance, "'the sealing-master obeyed in silence. "'The season must have been abnormally advanced, "'for although we continued to see a vast number of testaceans, "'we did not catch sight of a single whaling-ship "'in all this fishing-ground. "'I hasten to state that, although we were not tempted by whales, "'no other fishing was forbidden on board the Halbrain, "'and our daily bill of fare, profited by the boatswain's trawling-lines, to the extreme satisfaction of stomachs weary of salt meat. Our lines brought us goby, salmon, cod, mackerel, conjure, mullet, and parrotfish. The birds which we saw, and which came from every point of the horizon, were those I have already mentioned, petrels, divers, helicons, and pigeons in countless flocks. I also saw, but beyond aim, a giant petrel. Its dimensions were truly astonishing." This was one of those, called Quibran by the Spaniards. This bird of the Magellanian waters is very remarkable. Its curved and slender wings have a span of from thirteen to fourteen feet, equal to that of the wings of the great albatross. Nor is the latter wanting among these powerful winged creatures. We saw the dusky-plumed albatross of the cold latitudes sweeping towards the glacial zone. On the thirtieth of November, after observation taken at noon, it was found that we had reached sixty six degrees twenty three minutes three seconds of latitude. The halbrane had then crossed the polar circle which circumscribes the area of the Antarctic zone. End of chapter 11.
0: Thank you again for listening to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. I have been your host, D.B. Spitzer. Remember, you can help out the show by going to pgttcm.com Follow the show notes and follow the show on social media. Uh, find us anywhere you catch your pods, at your podcatchers. And, yeah, we're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. Just look for us there and look for us wherever you look for podcasts. Thank you again. Donate money, help out the show, buy a t-shirt, send us a, you know, contact us, get in touch. All right, thank you again and have a great day.